to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Beck Striding, the Executive Director of La Trobe, Asia. In today's podcast, we will be considering why gender matters when thinking about security. In Asia, discussions and policies concerning conflict, peace, and security remain dominated by male voices and views. The exclusion of women's voices has significant implications for the types of ideas, strategies and policies that are proposed and adopted in security related fields. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Manakshi Gopnath, who is the Director, Women in Security, Conflict Management and Peace, and a member of the Latrobe Asia Advisory Board, who is here to discuss with me the importance of involving women in Asian security conversations uh, and what can be done to ensure greater gender diversity. So welcome, Manakshi. It's terrific to have you on the podcast and also happy birthday. Thank you, Beth. It's a real pleasure to be here. And first of all, let me congratulate you on the fabulous job you're doing at Latrobasia. I look forward to your briefs and I've noticed to my great delight that the number of women contributors has increased under your leadership. And it's really substantive work that's coming up as well. Uh, I'm thank glad. you for that. <laughs> I'm glad you noticed. Uh, Well, let's start, Manakshi. You're a leader, in my view, in feminist international relations uh, and a founder of Women in Security, Conflict Management and Peace, a non-governmental organisation devoted to promoting peace and socio-political leadership among women in South Asia. So can you tell us a little bit about the organisation and what it sets out to do? Sure, it's a pleasure. WISCOM sounds a bit like an American corporation, but it isn't, as I said. It's Women in Security, Conflict Management and Peace. We were set up in 1999, and this was before the UN Security Council Resolution 1325. The idea was to provide a space to enhance the role of women as peace builders, negotiators, and as agents for nonviolent social change. It was the first initiative in South Asia that formally foregrounded the WPS agenda before it became a global agenda through the 1325 resolution. And it also seeks to empower a new generation of women and men with the expertise and skills to engage in peace activism through educational and training programs in conflict transformation. Uh, It contributes to an inclusive, people-oriented discourse on issues of security, hopefully rewriting the scripts on security through a feminist lens, or shall I say a more inclusive lens. And it facilitates theory building and innovative research on holistic paradigms that address the resolution and transformation of intra and interstate conflict. And it builds synergy at various levels between theory and practice, between those working in academia, in the formal structures of foreign policy, and diplomacy, and also those engaged in peace building. And the idea is also that it provides a non-hierarchical space where expertise and potential can come together in a sort of robust dialogue. So this is what we've been working on. I think that we are a work in progress and I'm one of the foot soldiers. Beck, you described me as a leader. I'm a foot soldier, really. And WISCOM is a continuous work in progress as it should 
ever remain, bringing on new ideas, new perspectives. But primarily, some of our flagship programs that I thought I might share with you involve young people. From the get-go, we were very clear that we wanted this to be an intergenerational initiative in South Asia, not a top-down one. Uh, we were very conscious that we wanted to have at least 30% men in all our programs, so we don't ghettoize ourselves. And we also refuse to have the add women and stir approach to anything. So our approach has been to non-essentialize or reductivize the role of women in peace building. And the other factor was that propelled us, or shall I say that informed our work, is that in South Asia in particular, we recognize that women face a continuum of violence. So there is what you might want to call a peacetime war that is going on continuously because they confront the patriarchies of family, community, and the state. And these are arraigned against them in a particular set of configurations that exclude them or having a voice in the spaces where policy matters to their lives in very significant way. One of the flagship programs I want to tell you about was a 13-year-long conflict transformation summer school that we had between young Indians and Pakistanis, what we call uh, future leaders of India and Pakistan, to engage in conversations and research and training, addressing even the thorniest of issues. We have an initiative of women building peace in Kashmir, which is, as you know, an area of conflict and has been for a long time. And in India's Northeast, where ethnic and other religious dissensions have created deep cleavages between communities and disrupted the fabric of coexistence. So that's what we are. We also want to draw from the rich experience of women's movements in the global South, which are often invisibilized in the global discourse on the WPS agenda. And I'll come to that. But let me ask you, you know, you're doing such fabulous work at uh, La Trobesia. And 2020 will, of course, long be remembered as a year of the COVID cloud. But it's also a very significant watershed year because it was 25 years of the Beijing Platform for Action. It was 20 years of the WPS agenda and five years of the SDGs. How do all these come together in your own work? And why do you feel, for example, that it's important today more than ever before to have women involved in discussions about conflict, peace and security? I'd love to hear your views back. Well, thank you, Manakshi, for turning the questions back on to me. I'm delighted to participate in the conversation. Certainly, I think in my role at La Trobe Asia, I'm Delighted that you have recognised that our publications and our events have been more inclusive and we have increased the visibility of women talking about security in our events because uh, we do keep an eye on diversity and inclusion. But I don't find it's necessarily that difficult to be inclusive of women or of people from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds but because that reflects the importance of networks, I think, who we collaborate with, who we connect with, who we invite to events such as 
yourself, Manakshi, who we ask to be a part of activities and who gets recommended to us as experts in the field tend to reflect our networks. So I think that's a really important part of the puzzle in thinking about academic events, but also more broadly in international fora and in international peace building activities that that's part of the reason why inclusion matters is that women need to be sort of within those networks to then be included in these activities, which affect the lives of women. So the representational aspect, the visibility piece, I think is really crucial. But I've done a little bit of research work on women in Australian international affairs before I became the executive director of La Trobe Asia with my colleague, Dr. Jasmine Westendorf. We edited a special issue of the Australian Journal of International Affairs that showcased the critical scholarship of women in international relations. So I guess while your focus has been quite on sort of practical issues to do with peace building, my attention's been focused mostly on the academy and how to ensure that women are taken seriously as scholars and experts in international affairs. We've written together on the ongoing barriers for women's representation in Australian international relations as a discipline. We find that women are interested and engaged in international affairs in almost equal measure to their male counterparts in academia, in high school. More girls are likely to take international or global politics than boys, and women are interested in international affairs in the field as well, in a kind of vocational sense. But there are these serious structural challenges that continue to undermine equitable representation in discussions about security. I see Latrobe Asia as playing an important role in supporting women and culturally and linguistically diverse academics at Latrobe University and beyond and promoting their research. And that's part of what we do at La Trobe is to support research connections. And we provide that support where we can because essentially the minimization of women's voices has implications for the types of ideas and strategies that we employ, the lenses that we use to understand issues of peace and security. But even in terms of understanding what constitutes an issue, or what constitutes an important event or an important set of issues can be determined by where we sit. So that's why representation matters. But I would like to get your view on this, Manakshi. Thank you, Beck. You know, I've been very impressed by your work at Latrobasia and also uh, the work of people like Jackie True, who's helmed the WPS uh, Centre, I think, at Monash. And there are many such uh, networks that afford the possibility of expanding linkages. And that is what we set out to do if you're looking at a gender-sensitive approach. I won't just call it feminist diplomacy, but a gender-sensitive diplomacy would be better because it it would include both men and women and people of alternate sexualities. And how we frame the discourse, as you said, is very important. And one of the greatest contributions of the women's movements has been to actually bridge the gap between theory and proxy. Mm. That, especially in the South Asian context, women who work in the peace and conflict area in academia uh, see it as a sine qua non of their work to continue to build bridges uh, with women at the grassroots. 
because much of the wisdom that has informed our own work on uh, WPS has really originated there. And I do want to share that in South Asia, women were doing gender and security or women in security without actually quite articulating it in that way. There's 1325 provided us a legitimate, globally accepted vocabulary within which to situate that work. But, uh, but the foremothers of WPS were already there in South Asia. And I think much of that work has been invisibilized. And now we look to places like Latrobe Asia to sort of bring them up and research on the genuine contributions of these women at the grassroots towards actually contributing to the WPS discourse. After all, 1325 was initiated, I think, uh, when Namibia was president of the Security Council, and it was given further impetus by Anwarul Haq Chaudhary of Bangladesh. It really was, in some senses, propelled, of course, by the WILF group, the International Alert group, and so on, the Global South had a very important role to play in it. Without being parochial, especially because we are all sitting in Asia, we need to talk about it and we need to make it. The important thing is for our work, what was important for us was to really reconfigure the perspective on security mm. and peace building. You know, earlier, the notion of the women building peace was a sort of a figure in white, something like a Florence Nightingale kind of figure, only passive kind of thing, not making too much trouble and so on. But we soon realized that you have to rock the ship of the state sometimes if you want to actually speak of genuine security for people, not just national security, mm. not just the reified uh, language of the uh, national security discourse, which talks of collateral damage and so on without thinking of the real individuals involved. So it was really to contest the reified discourse, to create an inclusive vocabulary. And therefore, you know, we always give the example of how Rosa Parks uh, refusing to get off that bus in Alabama because she was glued to her dignity, really lit the fuse for social dynamite in the US. And we feminists always say Rosa sat so that Martin could walk and Martin walked so that Obama could run. So there is a whole continuum, you know, that women very often initiate, but they are not visibilized. And I'm so glad that, that you're doing this. So this techno-strategic discourse, you know, is something that people have spoken about, which keeps women somehow out of the space of international articulation. Mm. But in South Asia, women entered the peace and security field through the corridors of human security and the twin pillars of freedom from want and freedom from fear, which propelled their work. So uh, whether it was uh, political establishments that denied them human rights, or it was the economic structure, the growth paradigms that marginalized certain communities. So these were the twin axes on which the human security discourse was purged. And I just want to share, and I know we're running uh, short of time, but this encapsulated it so beautifully. Mahbubul Haq's evocative statement and articulation on human security says, and it's so valid for us today, security is a child who did not die, a disease that did not spread, a job that was not cut, 
an ethnic tension that did not explode in violence, a dissident who was not silenced, and a human spirit that was not crushed. It's not a concern with weapons. It is a concern with human life and dignity. And today, where we are sitting in 2021, this resonates so, so deeply for us. It's such an important point that you make. And I think uh, in, in the academy in particular, we still have these gender and racial hierarchies in international relations as a discipline, historical scholarship that uh, have shaped what we even consider to be security. And it's an ongoing process or project to try and bring things like human security or economic security to the fore so that this is something that's treated as being just as serious as the sort of high politics of, you know, nuclear weapons or maritime disputes. I say maritime disputes as somebody who actually looks at maritime disputes. But anyway, (laughs) speaking of which, I mean, we're in a pandemic and in Australia, Sitting back, you know, we have Fortress Australia and and there's been this emphasis on keeping cases down to zero. And we look at India and other countries in the world that have struggled with the Delta variant and it's just been awful to watch. So how is the COVID-19 situation affecting women in India and more generally in Asia? And, I mean, this this is a security issue in terms of, you know, health but also in terms of economic and social participation and potentially political representation. You've probably seen video clips of this large mass of migrant uh, labour walking back to the rural hinterlands because they've been denied jobs and economic security. And they've been very, very stark images. And again, when I talk about the media, what they don't report is what happened to the women migrant labor, much less focus on that. However, you know, for example, there was a survey uh, by Women's Peace and Humanitarian Fund, which found that 30% of its local civil society partners reported that their organization's existence was at risk due to COVID. So you can imagine what it's doing to the WPS agenda already. And the pandemic worldwide lockdowns exposed it paradoxically in some ways the enormous value of unpaid care and domestic work for the economy and how disproportionately this burden is shouldered by women in several conflict affected countries women perform three to seven times as much unpaid care and domestic work as men so you know when you look at the uh, situation in asia south asia And in India, it's very, very stark. For example, about 75 to 80% of care workers are women, frontline warriors. Again, they too are invisibilized. Their work is not given the due that it deserves. They are not paid adequately. And of course, there are the usual hierarchies in the healthcare sector, which you and I are familiar with. Uh, Just to give you a statistic, in India, 400,000 cases were registered under crimes against women because of the high levels of violence against women that the COVID epidemic threw up. There are even at the beginning of the pandemic, the Indian National Commission for Women registered twice the number of domestic violence cases in March and April 2020. 92,000 child abuse cases in the family and communities. I mean, these are reported cases, and you can imagine how much silence 
uh, surrounds much of this. These are probably very, very conservative figures. In Bangladesh also, the situation is pretty bad. I think about 150 million women have been pushed into poverty on account of the pandemic. Unpaid care work has increased manifold due to the lockdowns, travel restrictions, closure of schools, increased need for care for the elderly. Much of this burden falls on women and it's unrecognized. The female to male ratio devoted to unpaid care is at 9.83 and is the third highest in the world in India. And even in the formal sector, for example, women earn one fifth of male incomes and the female labor workforce participation has in 2020 declined to 16.1. You can imagine the terrible impact that COVID had had. However, there's something known as a Feminist Alliance for Rights, uh, which is at Rutgers University and it's Center for Women's Global Leadership. And since we're talking about the leadership of women, uh, they had drawn out a charter uh, where they listed nine areas that governments, policymakers, civil society, and business should pay particular attention to. And these would be what they call the key focus areas for a feminist policy on COVID-19. They talk about food security. They talk about health care. They talk about education. They talk about emerging social inequalities. They talk about water and sanitation, economic inequality, access to information, for example, maternal health, contraception, all this has been denied to a lot of women during the COVID pandemic. And of course, finally, last but not least, the abuse of political power by governments that are democracies in formal terms, but are populist, masculinist democracies. And mm-hmm. you know what that means, the use of these extremely, uh, shall I say, harsh laws that block dissent, that block information sharing, and also use the power of the state to brand people who are raising questions as unpatriotic. Mm. Even today on the statute books in India, there exist some of these colonial laws where you can be put behind bars for opposing the state on account of what is called unpatriotic acts. So there is a whole range of, shall I say, abuse of power, where the state turns from protector to predator. If I may, I thought I might just share with you that in India in particular, since I'm talking about India and South Asia, increasingly, women have found their place in the resistance. They believe they have a commitment to make the the understanding of security their own. And it's been across a whole range of issues. So they have helmed several movements, like the Chipko movement, which is about the preservation of the environment. The Narmada Bachao movement, which is about an opposition to large dams that have displaced millions of people on account of development projects. The Baliapal movement, which is opposing a missile site in the state of Orissa, something like the Greenham Commons protests, the Bhopal gas tragedy, the women who have come together to provide rehabilitation, the Right to Information Act, the Oel Karo protests against dams. So all of these, they're actually doing security and they're doing gender. Mm. 
because you know as wangari mathai had said i think in 2007 at the conference on climate change that women's issues and women's voices are seldom heard in these deliberations although they are the ones most affected whether it is their long work collecting firewood or water but the women in india have believed they're in the forefront in the farmers agitation for example that's going on in india you must have heard about that but i want to share with you one particular protest it's a dramatic spectacular protest that happened in 2004 where women from the state of manipur who are the mothers uh, the mira paibis that they call themselves protested nude outside a security establishment because they wanted to protest the impunity that soldiers have on violence against women and the custodial death of particular women that was part of their clan that protest really shook people out of their complacency and said women are speaking a different language even as they speak security so they're doing security they're doing gender but it is through these kind of spectacular protests that they're drawing attention to the fact that we are not ready to remain in silence and darkness anymore That's really interesting and fascinating discussion. I think I could listen to you talk about this issue for a few hours yet, but uh, I would like to ask you one of the questions from the Q&A from John Neve. Hi John, thank you for joining us. And the question is how can listening to only half the human population of the world create a better educated, more prosperous future generation? So I think the question there is why do we need to include women in these conversations uh, in order to develop a more educated generation? Of course, education is an important interest of yours as well, Manakshi. The idea is not just to listen to women's voices the idea is that if they speak in a different voice it's an inclusive voice whether you talk about feminist foreign policy or gender sensitive foreign policy it is actually rewriting the scripts on inclusion looking for example at the commons and also why do women need to be included you just have to explain to men and women that i think women have demonstrated especially during this pandemic and women leaders like Jacinda Ardern and Angela Merkel and the heads of state in Norway Denmark Taiwan and so on their approach and response to the difficulties and the challenges of covid has been much more empathetic because there is deep down a sense of connectedness and i'm not essentializing women here i'm only saying that for them justice matters because they have known marginalization for long they have experienced it it's not that biologically they are somehow constituted to be more peaceful or more inclusive but the fact is that justice with peace is the new clarion call peace with justice not the peace of the great certainly not and therefore if you're leaving out half the population you may be potentially leaving out half the solutions the one thing that i think women have demonstrated or shall i say two things that they can build transversal solidarities transcending cartographic anxieties of borders and boundaries the second thing they have demonstrated by and large is this enormous resilience enormous resilience in the time of great deprivation and great privation covid has shown us that covid has demonstrated that there is great fragility on our planet 
and it has come home to us. It has come into our bedrooms. It has come into our homes. And by and large, I don't want to call them the frontline warriors. I'd like to call them the frontline healers. It has been given to them to provide relief, succor, a sense of empathy. And I think we can do a lot with more empathy in foreign relations. And perhaps in some strange way, COVID might be the harbinger of that change. I'm only suggesting, and I'm quoting a, an academic from the US here, that it's important that more and more of us begin to speak in the mother tongue. And by that, I don't mean English or Hindi or Bengali or Persian. I mean the language of inclusion. I mean the language that is often on the verge of silence, but always on the verge of song. And the language that can speak truth to power and the language where all maps can change. It's that language that we want to offer as an inclusive language, a language of cooperation, collaboration. When we're talking about the SDGs, and here it's fortuitous that 1325 is now taking on board the issue that security, development, and freedom are interlinked because underscoring all that is a notion of justice. And I think that language, it's in a sense, a world waiting to be born. And I think we can give utterance. We can provide the conceptual vocabulary for that language. There's a foreign secretary of India whom I respect enormously. And she was talking about what a feminist or shall I say a gender sensitive foreign policy would look like. And she said the following in terms of South Asia, it would embrace the idea of a South Asian commons. And here we can talk about Asia not just South Asia. It would speak and act in favor, not of ravishing disunities, but rationalizing unities, of merging capacities to build, to develop, to link. It would exercise vetoes to block war, not peace. It would emphasize the right to food, the right to public health, the right to knowledge and learning, and the fundamental right of women to exist, the right to reject the disconnects, the worn cliches, and the mental barriers that divide us. And it goes on in that vein. But basically, since we are sitting in Asia, and you are letter of Asia, we have to bring this language of resilience and connectedness back into our foreign policy transactions. It has been an absolute pleasure to converse with you on these issues, Manakshi, and you're such a, a great supporter of ours at La Trobe Asia, and we love you. We love the fact that you're on our advisory board, and it's just been so great to have you here for our Asia Rising podcast. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe Asia. If you like the podcast, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other podcasting platforms. You can follow us on Twitter. I am at Beck Strading and Latrobe Asia is at Latrobe Asia. I'm Beck Strading and thanks for listening.